Would you say that Highlands is a faithful church? And furthermore, what is a faithful church? What makes up a faithful church? You've heard me say, and I think even Ned said it this morning, the church is not a building. The church is people. The church is Christians. The church of Jesus is made up of disciples of Jesus. But those who profess faith in name only, those who don't love each other, those who teach and promote false teaching and false doctrine, are those included in a faithful church? What makes for a faithful church? And Paul, as he continues to land the plane here at the end of Romans, is going to tell us that this morning. Last week, we looked at Paul's plans to visit Rome. In so doing so, we found a few more things that the church should know and do. The church should mutually encourage each other. The church should go to great lengths to help each other. And the church should earnestly pray for each other. Bottom line, the church should support each other in the faith. This week, we're going to learn a couple more reasons or a couple more things that the church should know. He's throwing all of these things in at the end of his letter to make sure that he's not missing anything. You kind of know that maybe at the end of a text message or an email, you're like, oh, don't forget this and don't forget that. Don't forget. That's kind of, we're in the don't forget this part portion of Paul's letter here. This week, Paul really starts to close out his letter to the church at Rome. And there's nothing that says that like a bunch of greetings to specific people. This is a classic passage where we should be reminded that all of God's word is breathed out by God and useful for teaching, for reproof, for rebuke and instruction that the man of God would be complete in all things. There is everything in the word of God that we need. Even a bunch of names? Yes, even a bunch of names. Let's see what the Holy Spirit has for us this morning. Look again at Romans chapter 16, starting in verse 1. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the Lord at Sancre, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and myself as well. So here's name number one, Phoebe, and she gets a whole paragraph. What do we learn about Phoebe from the text? Well, she's a servant of the Lord in the church at Sancre, which is right by Corinth, probably under five miles away from Corinth. And who is she in this context? Probably Miss Phoebe is probably someone who is physically bringing the letter. That's why Paul's saying, hey, this is her. Welcome her. She probably hand-delivered this letter to the church at Rome. And by Paul announcing that in the letter himself, He's saying, she's legit. She's from me. This is my message. I sent her. It's hard for us in the technology age of 2024 to wonder why you would send somebody to bring a letter, and, and, and furthermore, why you would have to vouch for them that they are the person that you sent to bring said letter. But commentator Murray writes, it is highly probable that Phoebe was the bearer of this epistle to the church at Rome, and letters of commendation were a necessity when a believer traveled from one community to another in which he or she was unknown to the saints. And so particularly a woman at that time in first century Greco-Roman culture, we don't have a mention of her husband. We hope she had some bodyguards or at least was packing or something <laughs> to protect herself. But she has verification from Paul that she is legit and you should then welcome her. We don't hear of Phoebe anywhere else in the New Testament, but in our text, Paul refers to her as a sister in the Lord a servant of the church. First time, we're at the end of the letter. Paul drops the word church, 
ecclesia at sencre. Ecclesia meaning a gathering. It doesn't just mean a church. You could use that for anything in that, at that time. It could be a gathering of people to watch a basketball game. It is a gathering, but we know that it is a gathering like you are today. You are an ecclesia gathered together to worship Christ, a gathering of Christians. But it also tells us two things. First, that she's a legit disciple. She's a sister, but also that she serves the church, a specific church, possibly with a specific role. Some would say that, and I would be one of them, that Phoebe is listed here as an official deacon of the church. Same word. Some argue that point, saying that only men should be deacons of the church, and it refers to just a general servant of the church here. But I'm of the, I'm of the persuasion that this is where we get our leniency, and Highlands Falls on that side, where we can have female deacons. For one, this is the same exact word that's used in passages elsewhere in Scripture describing deacons by name in 1 Timothy and Titus. And secondly, a deacon is not an ordained teaching position of the church. An ordained is a serving position of the church. And so bonus content. See, we're like two lines into this, and already we're picking up stuff from the text. So if you've ever wondered why Highlands thinks that female deacons are okay, and I get that question just about every member meeting, this is part of the reason why. Bonus material for you. So what is Paul telling the church to do with her? Well, two things, welcome her and help her in whatever she needs. Why? Paul says that. Because, for, she's been a patron or a benefactor of many, Paul included. Phoebe is most likely a successful businesswoman, someone of financial and other means, and she uses those resources to help the church. And Paul's saying, listen, this is Phoebe, Phoebe, Phoebe from, I got a lot of names to get through. I'm going to have to bring Ned back up here. I'm going to phone a friend. She says, Phoebe has helped the church tremendously. Phoebe's helped me tremendously. She's a benefactor of the church. Welcome her. And then Paul goes on to greet people. Lots of people. As one commentator notes, 26 individuals, two families, and at least three house churches. Let's look at some of these greetings. Verse 3. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Epinatus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked very hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They were well known, well known among the apostles. And they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampelatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachus. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman Herodion. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphena and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus. Chosen in the Lord and his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. 
Theologians have long tried to make some sort of order of this, and I can tell because I know you all, some of you are breaking your brains right now trying to figure out how these things go together. I'm going to tell you they don't. I think this is totally random. But what isn't random is the people they represent and the roles in the church that they represent. That's what I don't think is random. First, he lists some fellow workers, those people whom he has been in the trenches with, fought side by side, taught side by side, who have been faithful, serving tirelessly with him, fellow elders, deacons, servants. The first people he mentions are Prisca, or Priscilla, and her husband, Aquila, who risked their necks for his life. Not sure exactly when that happened. Paul had a lot of times where his neck was on the line, so it could have been just about anywhere. He gives thanks for them and all the Gentile churches as well. But not only that, the church that meets in their home. This is the transitional time where the Christians were probably still meeting in the synagogues and not meeting in the synagogues. They probably weren't very popular in the synagogue at this point. So they had to meet in house churches as well. So, as well. so that means you needed people who had houses that could meet with 40 or 50 people in their house together. And so we know that Priscilla and Aquila were hosting one of those churches. You can read about the married power couple in Acts 18, where ironically, we were this week in Wednesday night Bible study. Yes, every Wednesday night, 7.30 p.m., right up there. Shameless plug. These folks were critical in the early church. It's what we like to see. Married power couples serving together in the church. Highlands has many of them. He mentions the fellow workers as well. Mary, Urbanus, two sisters, Tryphena, Tryphosa, as well as Persis. He mentions slaves like Empelatus, Apelles, and a few slave-owning families who either were believers themselves or there were slaves that were believers, and he was just then greeting the household by name, Aristobulus and Narcissus. He mentions fellow prisoners, and we have no idea when he's talking about there because Paul got locked up a lot. So we're not really sure. Maybe it was just occasion where he was locked up and somebody else was locked up at different times, so then therefore they were fellow prisoners, even if they weren't cellmates or what have you. Paul had several imprisonments, and he mentions Andronicus and Junia, who he calls his kinsmen, meaning fellow Jews, to those who are well known to the apostles. And that, that, that little phrase right there has got progressive Christianity all wrapped around the axle because they're like, see, Junia is a female name, and Junia was an apostle, except that's not what the text says. She wasn't an apostle. It says she was well known to the apostles. It means the apostles knew about her because she was faithful in the early church. She was not an, a, a capital A apostle. He mentions fellow kinsmen, again, Jews, Herodion, and then a general list of church members and dear friends like Epinatus, the first convert in Achaia or Asia Minor, Stachys, Rufus, and his mom, which Paul says, hey, by the way, she was my adopted mom too. Wasn't actually Paul's mom. Not sure how she acted in the capacity of mom for the Apostle Paul, but you can use your imagination there. I'm sure he needed mom hugs every once in a while. He mentions a syncretist, Phlegon, Julia, Nereus, and his sister Olympias, and all the saints that are with them. And then in verse 16, he gives a summary command. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches in Christ greet you. And again, remember the Gentile Jew dynamic here. 
And so he's saying, all the Gentile churches greet you. All the Gentile and Jew churches together under Christ Jesus. And he says, greet each other with a holy kiss. The holy kiss, Paul mentions several other places in his writings. Holy, not because there's anything sanctified or special about it, but he differentiates it from something sexual or something ordinary. It's a sign of love between brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus. We who are in the family by faith. Notice again, he calls them saints. A saint is not an old dead person who has done miracles. A saint is a Christian. So if you're here today and you're a Christian, congratulations, you are a saint. And Paul says they are saints. Greet them. He knows them, he loves them, and he wants them to share these warm greetings with all of the saints. So here's the first point. The church should have a special affection for one another. The church should have a special affection for one another. He commands them to greet each other close to 20 times. It's an imperative. Greet, 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 greet. He says it close to 20 times. Brotherly and sisterly affection is all over the Bible. It's not just that we love each other, but we have a special love for each other. It should be a warmth. It should be different. Do you see the words that Paul uses to greet one another? Some of them have very special personal language and their lists, their accomplishments in the gospel. Prisca and Aquila host a church and risk their lives. He uses terms like my fellow prisoners, my kinsmen, beloved in the Lord, approved in Christ, and chosen in the Lord. This sentiment is all over the Bible in both Testaments. Of course, we just read in Leviticus this morning, love your neighbor as yourself. Earlier in this very letter, in chapter 12, verse 10, Paul says simply, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Second Peter includes it in his list of virtues to pursue in maturity in the faith. Look at 2 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 5. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, godliness, here we go, with brotherly affection, brotherly affection with love, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you want to know how to grow more mature in the faith, First Peter, Second Peter chapter 1 is a great place to focus. And he says, among all of those things that you should be cultivating in ever-increasing measure is brotherly affection, sisterly affection. We should have a love for the saints. Spurgeon wrote, Christians should love one another, and they should bear one another's names on their hearts. Back then, most likely men kissed men on the cheek and women kissed women. Today, a kiss of greeting is still the norm, depending. We have lots of greetings in the U.S. usually reflects your relationship with the person. Acquaintances shake hands, or we give the guy nod from across the room. Friends bro hug. Family members embrace and give a a kiss on the cheek. And of course, spouses kiss on the lips. And spouses, if you're not kissing on the lips, you should be kissing on the lips. Just throwing that out there. Brothers and sisters should greet each other in a special way. This, this passage is probably not prescriptive. It's not telling us exactly what to do. Like we all line up and give each other a, a holy kiss on the cheek every single Sunday because maybe some of you are sick and we shouldn't be doing that. And plus, maybe some of you don't want a kiss on the cheek, right? 
So it's not prescriptive saying that we have to do it this way, but it's descriptive, telling us that there should be something that sets us apart as brothers and sisters. We should be happy to see brothers and sisters. Think of being separated from Highlands Bible Church. Think of being isolated from all other Christians and then seeing someone from your care group or seeing someone from a church that you know very well. It would be like an oasis in the desert, and I guarantee there would be a special greeting for that. Highlands, the point of this is that we should have a special affection for one another. Why? I'll give you three quick reasons in application. First, we're all in the same family. We should have a special affection for each other because we're all in the same family, the family of God. Family members greet each other in a different way than just acquaintances or coworkers or neighbors. You can tell who are family when people greet each other. You can tell who knows each other really, really well by the way they greet each other. We're all part of the family of God. We are brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus together. We're adopted by faith into God's family together. We have the same father, church. We all have the same father. We should have that, that family affection for one another. We love God because God loved us. So first, we're all in the same family. Second, we all have the same mission. We get up in the morning, and the biggest thing on our minds should be, how am I going to glorify God today? In my job, in my family, in my driving, in my social media use, whatever. We all should wake up with that common mission, and we have a common mission together that binds us together in unity. So not only are we in the same family, but we also have the same mission together. We all fight sin in different ways. And we all seek to advance his kingdom together. So we're in the same family. We have the same mission. But third, the world sees us the same way. Weirdos, strangers, people who don't cuss or smoke or whatever the case may be, right? People that make decisions based on this book, not what culture says to do. People who are based in some sort of, of biblical morality in God's law. People who have a different calling to glorify God. People who show the fruits of the Spirit and love, joy, peace, and patience, and kindness in the world. It's like, what is that? And that's all of us together. We all have that commonality. We're all strangers and aliens, the Bible reminds us. And so we, are, we treat each other with brothers and sisters in arms. Sunday is my favorite day of the week. I get to see my family. We're all together in one place. We should come into this building with an empty tank, and we should get it filled up by the Holy Spirit, by God's word, our brothers and sisters in the Lord cheering us on in our, our fight with sin. That's the whole point of the Sabbath. We're mutually encouraged in the Lord. We are glad to see each other. Every Sunday, that's what happens here. Hugs and kisses and bro hugs and smiles, and there's a warmth. That's one of the things I get as a comment that people say, you are a warm and welcoming church. And I say, that's exactly what we want to be like. The church should have a special affection for one another. But there are things that we also have to mutually avoid. And first and foremost, Paul warns us about false teaching. Look at Romans 16 and verse 17. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, 
to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them, for such persons do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Once more, Paul drops a third time in this letter, the I appeal, I appeal to you, brothers. What is he appealing them to do or appealing to them to do? To watch out for those who do two things, those who cause division and those who create obstacles. Obstacles to what? Sound doctrine. And our word watch out is a Greek word skopeo. So think of something like a scope on a rifle, and I just got all of the hunter's attention. You are looking through that scope because I would imagine you want to see something more closely. You want to zoom in. You want to see if you have a shot. You want to see what that is. Same thing. You want to be on the lookout for false teachers. You want to be scanning. You want to be zooming something in. You want to make sure, is it true teaching or is it false teaching? This seems kind of random, though. I mean, Paul just blows through a list of like 26 names, and now he's like, oh, also, uh, by the way, look out for false teachers. He's kind of jumping all over the place here. He says, don't forget to greet all these people. Also, watch out for those who create obstacles. Watch out for those who create divisions. Watch your doctrine. Avoid them. What does he tell them to do? He says, avoid them. Avoid them like you would avoid a person on 515 with their blinker stuck on doing 17 miles an hour with a line of cars, like just, when it's legal, just pass them right by. Paul says, don't even, just, just avoid them. Why are these people dangerous to their faith? Well, first of all, because what he said, they create divisions and obstacles in the church. Many times, the New Testament warns of the dangers of division in the church. Titus 3 is very specific in how to deal with divisive people. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. What do you do with divisive people? You warn them, and then you avoid them. Divisive about what? Well, he tells us. Someone setting up division and obstacles contrary to doctrine. The doctrine that you have been taught. Yes, the church has doctrine. Yes, the church has a consistent, specific doctrine that we have always believed since the time of the apostles right here where Paul is writing this. In other words, the church should have a historic, apostolic, and orthodox doctrine, and the church should hold to it, and anyone who teaches otherwise is to be avoided. In his letter to the young Timothy, Paul writes this, if anyone teaches a different doctrine, that does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, even that, there were words that Jesus used. You remember those words. If what you're hearing being taught doesn't line up with those very words, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He says, this is what you do with doctrine. One of the greatest false teachings in the church and around the church and critics of the church today is that there is no standard. How do people say that to me? That there is no standard of doctrine. You church can't, church can't agree on anything. 
There is no historic apostolic orthodox standard. And to that, I would say, no, you're wrong. And that's the point that we have to make here. There is something that has been carried through. Like Jude said, the faith delivered once for all the saints. And it's been handed off to the church since then. Do we have disagreements and stuff? Oh, yeah, you better believe we have disagreements and stuff. But what's got to remain constant, the most important thing? The first order doctrines, the trinity, who Jesus is, how we're saved, the nature of man, all of these things that are critical to us, those things have never wavered. And if they are, guess what? People identified them as heretics and said, that doesn't agree with what we've always believed. That's not true. We should avoid that teaching. Why are, there, why are the false teachers dangerous if we look back in our text of verse 18? Because they aren't out for the glory of God. They're out for the glory of themselves. They're out for their own appetites. Literally in the Greek, it's their own stomachs. They're, they're trying to satisfy their own cravings, whatever that craving might be, their own agendas. And they will try to convince others by smooth talk and flattery to deceive the hearts of the naive. And then he encourages them in verse 20, or 19 and 20. You guys aren't naive. You guys know the truth. Everybody knows about your obedience. The whole church has heard of it. This brings me great joy, Paul says. But be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. In other words, don't be an expert in sin. Don't be an expert in false theology. Be an expert in righteousness and what God calls us to in his word. Further encouragement, he says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. And he says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Here we have a shout out all the way to the beginning in Genesis chapter 3. We've got one more week in Romans, and then we'll make the big swing into Genesis. Genesis 3.15, right after the fall, God gets everybody together, and he addresses Satan first. That's really important, because God comes to our defense. God's our defender. He comes to Satan first, and he says, Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall, bru- yeah, and you shall bruise his heel. That's shouting back. When people heard that, they knew right away he was talking about Genesis 3, the promise that Satan would soon be crushed by God. He's encouraging them. Some think that this is when Christ returns, and that's certainly true. But it's not just a future victory when Christ returns. Christ will get victory, keep it in context here, over false teachers. Christ's church will be built. We just sung it. And the world will be filled with his glory. And the false teachers, who are they themselves representatives of Satan, the church will crush them through the preaching of the truth. And that's how the church will do it, through faithful, obedient churches like Rome and like Highlands Bible Church that hopefully avoid false teachers. And so the point is that the church should avoid false teachers. The church should avoid false teachers. I mean, good thing this was written back in, you know, 50 AD, and good thing we're through that whole false teacher phase, right? It's a good thing we don't have any false teachers in 2024. Like, pretty much everybody on YouTube or Twitter, I mean, they're just slinging some solid orthodox doctrine, right? I mean, they're everywhere, absolutely everywhere. 
mostly because any idiot like myself can start a podcast or can start a YouTube channel. There's just, there's no, there, shouldn't we have to go through some sort of approval process there? Just fire it up, get your camera on, and you can just start talking to the world and saying anything that you want to say. Paul knew it would happen, which is why he's warning the church and us in his letters. Remember in Acts last week where, where the Ephesian elders were on the beach at Miletus to, to try and get Paul not to go to Jerusalem because they were afraid he was going to get dead, which is actually what happened. And it's pretty clear that that was going to happen. And what's Paul's main focus? Not his own desires, but the church. You want to talk about the opposite of men who work for their own desires? It's the Apostle Paul. Acts chapter 20 and verse 28 Paul says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock, the church, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from even among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Paul knows this is going to happen. And he says, be ready. He says, I'm not worried about myself. I'm worried about you guys. He says, be ready. The church should avoid false teachers. Anyone, it seems, even today, can plant a church with no commissioning, no oversight, no accountability from another church at all. That's why we're so thankful for Green Pond Bible Church. Chapel. They're not a church. They're a chapel. Any pastor can have a huge moral failing be removed from ministry, and then go set up shop in another city and then start another church. This happens, unfortunately, a lot. How do we deal with this? How do we spot this? Four ways that we can spot false teaching and one way to respond. First, is it apostolic? Meaning, is it biblical? We say apostolic means, can I read it in the New Testament where Jesus and the apostles talked about it? Is it biblical? Is it apostolic? In other words, does the teaching line up with what the Bible said, what the apostles said? First thing, you should be Bereans. You should be checking what is said against Scripture. This assumes two big things. First, that you know Scripture. We need to be a student of Scripture. And that second, that the teacher is actually teaching Scripture. I'm, I shouldn't be up here teaching my own thoughts. Hopefully, I'm teaching Scripture grounded in scripture. This is why we believe in expositional preaching, not teaching my own ideas of what God said to me in the middle of the night. Preaching God's word, and hopefully I expose the meaning of the text and the Holy Spirit then works through the preaching of the word to then bring people to himself. That's why we believe in the authority of God's word. So first, look at it. Is it apostolic? Does it line up with scripture, what the apostles said? Second, is it historic? Does it line up with what the church has always said throughout history? Us non-denominational evangelicals kind of skip this part, but there's like 2,000 years of church history. There are people that actually thought about these things within a century, two centuries, three centuries after Jesus and the disciples walked the face of the earth, and they wrote about it, and they wrote a lot about it. One look at LGBTQ will show us that the church has never believed any of it. One look at the prosperity gospel or a hyper-focus on the rapture or end times. It's not what the church has always believed. They never believe that when you look at it. How do we know what the early church believed? 
read the old dead guys. I always try and have at least one or two commentaries in what I'm doing with every book. That person's not alive anymore. They're old and they're dead. And we read them and we understand them. Read the church fathers, Justin Martyr, Clement, Augustine. Read the reformers, Calvin, Luther. Read the Puritans. Read today's authors then who line up with what the church has always said. So is it apostolic? Also, is it historic? Third, is it orthodox? To be orthodox means that is it right? Does it line up with what we've actually always believed and always practiced? They make these things called creeds and catechisms and confessions of, of faith that, again, we non-denoms don't usually look at those things, even though we, we integrate them here at Highlands because we believe they're important. But creeds and catechisms and confessions of faith are summaries of what the church has believed. They're orthodoxy on a page. So does it line up with Heidelberg or Westminster or the 39 Articles? Read the Westminster Confession of Faith, the London Baptist Confession of Faith, the Augsburg Confession. They're not as boring as you think they are. And all the way, all, uh, also, this stuff's online, usually free or usually dirt cheap on Amazon because nobody reads these things. But we should. We should ground ourselves in the orthodoxy of the early church. You know what you'll find if you ground yourself in that? There's nothing new under the sun. You're going to find that the same heresies come up time and time and time again. And in 2024, they just get repackaged and microwaved and warmed up. And then you read and you find that, well, we dealt with this in the third century. Is it orthodox? Fourth, is it Christ-glorifying? Just like our passage today, it's pretty easy to see. The false teacher is serving their own appetites instead of serving Christ. Look at what the motives are behind the teaching. Are they out for financial gain? Are they out for sexual pleasure? Are they trying to pull a power trip on their people? Are they trying to build a platform or an empire for themselves? What does the church or what does Paul say to do about it? He says, avoid it. So we have four things, and here's the thing to do. Avoid it. Don't pay any attention to it. When confronted with it directly, we will engage it. We don't run from it like, oh, false teaching, let me run away. No, if you're, if you're engaged in it, engage it. Refute it from the word of God. If you need help, that's why we have the church. That's why we have elders. But otherwise, avoid it. Don't give it a second thought. Don't let it get a hold of you. I can't tell you how many times that happens, and I can see it happening. I can see somebody getting sucked into some internet huckster, and I say, don't listen to them. And bit by bit by bit, they start drifting and drifting and drifting. It happens quickly. Don't let it get a hold of you. And church, I cannot tell you how important this is in 2024 America. False teaching is literally everywhere. So many professing Christians fall for it. Why? Because they don't know their Bibles. Because they don't know history. They don't know orthodoxy. They don't check the motives. They don't sniff out the motives of what's going on here. They don't know that it's contrary to what the church has always preached and believed. Contrary to what people might think, doctrine does not divide. Ever hear that saying? Doctrine divides. Anytime we start talking about nerdy theology and doctrine, people get all upset, so we just don't talk about that stuff. 
We talk about Jesus' love and grace and all of that good stuff. Okay, but you just named kind of two doctrines there, Jesus' love and grace, right? The churches that try to avoid doctrine are still preaching some sort of doctrine. It's just a mishmash. Doctrine does not divide. Doctrine unites because division is the tool of Satan and unity is the fruit of the spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we stand on. First and foremost, of course, the truth of who Jesus was and his gospel. That's what we stand on. Here's what church father John Chrysostom said many, many years ago. Division is the subversion of the church. Turning things upside down like this is the devil's weapon. As long as the body is united, he has no way of getting in. But harm comes from division. And where does division come from? From doctrines that are contrary to the teaching of the apostles. You want to be a united church? You want to stay a united church? You want to protect from division? Then we protect our doctrine. And we protect it like it's our lives depended on it because our spiritual lives do. Doctrine unites, and we have to be faithful. That's not glamorous. Faithfulness is not necessarily glamorous, is it? But that's what we're called to do. Faithful servants trying to pass on the truth of God's word, like the one Paul mentions in the last few verses that you thought I forgot about. But I didn't. Verse 21. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you, and so do Lucius and Jason, and so Sipiter, my kinsman. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me in the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Cordus greet you. Faithful servants. They get a line in here, and they're, they're greeted, and they're, they have their, their compliments for what they have done. Timothy, we of course know, Paul's younger protege, his traveling companion, his co-laborer in the gospel. Lucius, we're not sure, it might be Luke. He's traveled with Luke, so sometimes Lucius is another way of saying Luke. Jason, the guys in the Wednesday Night Bible Study know Jason. He just got beat up for standing up for Paul in Acts. So Sipiter is also mentioned in Acts. We see Tertius, or Tertius, who is apparently scribed this letter for Paul. Tertius is writing this stuff down. As Paul, imagine that. Like, Paul must be completely neurotic by this. But like, oh, don't forget this. Don't forget that. Don't forget this. Greet all these people. He's, Tertius is like, slow down, bro. Come on. <laughs> Paul's scribing this to Tertius. He's saying, I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, I also greet you. He gets a little shout out in there. Before he, when he takes a breath, I also greet you, Tertius. He writes that down. Erastus, or rather Gaius first. Gaius is mentioned elsewhere, 1 Corinthians 3. It could also be Titus of Acts 18. Erastus, who is mentioned in Acts 19 and 2 Timothy 4, a local politician showing just how far Christianity has permeated the culture in Rome. We have people working for Rome who are Christians. Are any of these rock stars? Are any of these people rich? Is it glamorous here? Poor Quartus. I looked at Quartus. We know nothing about Quartus. Sorry, Cordus. <laughs> he was there, though. He gets a shout-out. That's about it. Sure, it'd be super cool to have your names in the Bible. You know what would be even cooler? The sentiment behind it. Greet the saints in the church at Highlands. 
because they are faithful. They are sound in the faith. They are unmoving. They are stable. They are steadfast. That's what we want here. Faithfulness. We want a quiet faithfulness. Why? Because it's not about these guys. It's not about Quartus. It's about Jesus. He was faithful, church, and so therefore we can be faithful. In seminary, one of the things that one of my preaching uh, profs beat into our brains was this. Preach the gospel, shepherd the sheep, die and be forgotten. I just love that. That's why we never named this Mike Rule Bible Church, and nor should it ever be named anybody's ministry or name. That's quiet faithfulness. We should preach the gospel. We should exalt Christ Jesus. We should die like everybody's going to die. And we should be forgotten. Because why? Jesus endures, not us. Here's the big idea. Be like Quartus. No. What is a faithful church? A faithful church is made up of faithful Christians. A faithful church is made up of faithful Christians. We see a ton of names. We see warnings to avoid false teachers, and then some more names at the end. Not many preachers would wake up on the Lord's Day and say, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to preach 30 names that nobody's ever heard of. That is going to really bring them in. But that's God's word. All God's word. And it all preaches because it all says something. Remember those names. Who was in there? Slaves were in there. Women were in there. Workers were in there. Greeks, Romans, Jews, Quartus. Talk about diversity. One church, one body. Many different people from all different spectrums. Guys, the church is the originator of diversity, equity, and inclusion. The world just ripped it off from us and put a label for sin on it. The church should have a special affection for one another. Look at the list of names that Paul gives extensively marked for special recognition and greeting. Why? Because the church was faithful. Look at the warmth. Look at how he loves them and knows them. And they weren't only faithful workers. They were faithful believers. They were renowned for their obedience. And they knew how to tell good teaching from false teaching. They were faithful. And we need to be able to spot and avoid false teachers, especially in 2024 America. Most of all, we need to be faithful to Jesus. A faithful church is made up of faithful Christians. Think of the way that Jesus was faithful. The ultimate faithful servant who condescended from the glories of heaven to come down to a sin-soaked earth to take on a punishment that he did not deserve and he did everything completely faithfully. And he was crucified on a cross and he went to the grave and he was resurrected gloriously three days later to be exalted as our propitiatory sacrifice for sin. Christ is the ultimate faithful servant and that's our model. We need to be faithful servants. While writing this sermon, I received a text from a sweet sister in the Lord. It was a picture of her Facebook timeline that said eight years ago and she was attending the first public service of Highlands Bible Church which was March 27th, 2016. And she wrote, so amazing to see what the Lord has done with Highlands, which it is. But I responded, through faithful people like you. That's what the Lord does through faithful people. 
I think one day for me, a good life and a good goal would be to write a list of greetings like this of all the dear saints at Highlands that I had the absolute joy and pleasure of serving with and then die and be forgotten. A faithful church is made up of faithful Christians like you at Highlands and like those in Rome. Father, we thank you so much for your word We know, Lord, that there are false teachers out there, and we ask your protection from them. We thank you so much for your word, which gives us everything we need, for your spirit, which lives inside each one of us, Lord, which which convicts and teaches and instructs all of the things that Jesus said to us. Lord, protect us from the evil one. Protect us from false teaching. And Father, we pray that as we seek to be faithful here at Highlands Bible Church, Would you be exalted? And we ask it all in the name of Jesus, our perfect and faithful high priest. Amen.